I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare. We never initiate any violence upon anyone, but if anyone attacks us, we reserve the right to defend ourselves. When you're in your own nation, in your own land, you're in a position to get justice. But when you're in another man's country, in another man's land, you have to look for that other man for justice, and you'll never get it. We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us, but we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Anytime you beg another man to set you free, you will never be free. We are ready and willing to pay the price that is necessary for freedom. What price are you talking about? Sir? The price of freedom is death. Welcome to Make It Plain, where we offer Christian reflections on the words and life of Malcolm X. I'm Philip Holmes. And I'm Taylor Gray. We are your hosts. So, uh, Phil, this, this week we're going to discuss Malcolm X and his relation to re- relationship to black women. And um, I thought, you know, we could use this quote, which has been widely circulated, but um, we have a guest today. I, I, I'd like for you to introduce our guest. Well, special guest today, the lovely, the beautiful Jasmine Holmes. Jasmine. Hey, guys. What's up? I saw a dope painting or artistic rendering of Malcolm X, which I'm sure we'll get into later, that uh, apparently belonged to you. So happy to have you on. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, He's been a favorite for a long time. Let me get us started with uh, a quote from Malcolm. Um, He says this, the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Way to kick us off there, Malcolm, as you usually do. Jasmine, Phil and I would like to first ask you to just kind of give us some of your thoughts in relation to this quote. What kinds of things do you think of or or what just comes to mind when you hear him say this? Yeah, I actually, um, so I just turned in a manuscript for a book that I'm writing about black women in Christian history. And I used Malcolm's quote in the introduction and I used it and juxtaposed it with Sojourner Truth's speech, Ain't I a Woman? Where she pretty much makes the same argument a hundred years before and says, you know, people say that women are supposed to be treated so well, that they're supposed to be, for instance, helped into carriages, that they're supposed to faint, they're supposed to be gentle, they're supposed to be docile, they're supposed to be, you know, tender. But throughout my life, I've been treated like a workhorse because I was enslaved and ain't I a woman? And the two quotes just kind of work together beautifully to show that so often ideals about womanhood and the protection of the feminine have not historically been extended to Black women. I'd love to hear much more about, especially Sojourner. I didn't know that those two would work so well together, in, especially as it relates to this topic. Phil, did you have any thoughts? Uh, Jasmine knows I've been kind of obsessed with sort of the idea of power over the last six to nine months and the role that power plays in society as well as in something as intimate as our homes. In the words of Isabel Wilkinson, I'm, I'm not reading through cast, so... People will probably hear me talking a lot about that book. Jasmine read it like six months ago as I was sort of beginning to think through power and all of this. 
and she talks about how the caste system sort of works in America. And, you know, it's clear to me that, and, and this is why when you hear Malcolm talk, he's always talking about the white man because the white man in Malcolm's view is at the top of the caste system sort of in society. Um, and then you have uh, white women and then you have black men. And at the bottom of that, and I'm just talking about these two different ethnicities, and at the bottom of that naturally is going to be black women. But oftentimes that's overlooked. And I'm, I, there's a lot of things I've been noticing, even in ev evangelicalism, how black women are starting to sort of get a lot of uh, opportunities and a lot of attention that they're definitely worthy of. But at the same time, unfortunately, as the same thing that happened with black men, I, I, I feel that there might be even some missteps and some tokenism that's involved there. And offering and encouraging and pushing people to take things that they, they don't necessarily desire to do or are qualified for just because just so that they can have a black woman. So it's, it's kind of black women are being used in some ways, I think the same way that black men were used in the mid to late 2000s or, or yeah, 2000s and 2010s. So yeah, so a lot of thoughts in that. Jasmine, I, I want to hear you because you, again, you've already finished the book, but there were some particular things yesterday when we were listening to the book. And we were like, man, we got to talk about this in the podcast because she talks about the way that Black women were treated. Would you talk a little bit about some of that as well? Yeah. One of the most striking things that's in cast, and the first time I think I heard it was in The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, was the change from British law to British common law to American law in the inherited status of children. So if in England a man had a child with an enslaved woman he was responsible for the child and the child inherited his status as a free person that's mm -hmm. how it had always been that was the expectation but then in america as ideas about black humanity began to shift we kind of went from imitating common law and trying to stop white white men from sleeping with their enslaved women to saying, okay, you know what? It's inevitable, it's happening all the time. So we're changing the law and the children inherit the status of the mother so that when a white master rapes his black enslaved woman, um, the child that is produced from that relationship is also enslaved. Mm. And in this way, it takes responsibility from the man to have to take care of his offspring and to provide for his offspring and to look out for the interests of his offspring in the same way that he would if he had offspring with a white woman. It's fascinating because it wasn't so, like I said, it wasn't always like that. And Wilkerson talks about a story really early in the colonies where a white man was um, publicly scorned and punished because he had sex with, I don't know if she, that she was enslaved, but with an African woman. And the wording of the time was that he had defiled himself, that he had lowered himself, that he had sullied himself. Mm -hmm. um, and so it kind of went from, yeah, guys, we really just shouldn't do this. Um, it's gross, <laughs> you know, to, okay, it's going to happen. So we need to change the law to reflect the fact that even if, we are having sex with black women, we're still showing that they don't have the same value as their white counterparts because mm. we don't owe them anything. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's two things that are happening when it comes to this, the status that the child is going to receive that allow a white man to essentially sleep with black women without any consequence. So they could impregnate a black woman and essentially they were creating labor slaves for themselves. And then on the other end, one of the things that stood out as well was that it wasn't that they were sleeping with black women. That wasn't his crime. When you get down to the root of it, his crime was that he was sleeping with a black woman and treating her with dignity and respect. So men were allowed to rape black women and and have sex with them as long as they didn't, as Jasmine mentioned, showed, showed them any type of value. You know, I, I just got to pause and, and just acknowledge how horrific that is, you know, how, how horrific of a, of a life experience that is for generations and generations of people, women, and, and women in particular, because obviously they're managing all of these ways of being treated, you know, despicable ways of being treated. And yet it affects the entire family, you know, it affects children, affects husbands. There's some sort of societal effect in terms of what perception tells you and ultimately what the power structure is designed to do. And so that's just, I mean, that's just really hard to hear and to absorb. Yeah, I think when when I first read about it in the problem of slavery in Christian America, I think there's so many things that 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 we take for granted about our history that that we don't stop to really think about and let sink in and realizing the depth of disdain with which black female bodies have been treated throughout the history of this country is something that has come to me in waves and phases, particularly when I juxtapose it with the way that white women in this country have been treated. I was talking to Philip about it the other day and just thinking like there were laws that said that of course a black slaveholder could not ever own a white person. Black slaveholders could own other black people. They might have even been able to own Native American people or indigenous people, but they could not own white people. And Mm. the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, well, of course they couldn't because no white man in the 1800s is going to put a white woman or a white young girl in the vulnerable position of being completely owned by someone else and that person having complete access to their body, that person having complete access to their time, that person having just unfettered access to them, especially not if that person is a black person. And it seemed so obvious to me when I thought it, like, of course they'd want to protect their daughters and their sisters and their wives, but also of course they wouldn't see black women as being equally worthy of protection. You know, and, and, it, and it gives us, a real, I think a, a real sense in terms of what Malcolm is saying here is, you know, it's not hyperbolic language. It's not, you know, him being extreme or, you know, whatever people may want to perceive out of the directness and in, in maybe even offensive nature of what Malcolm says. It's, it's, it's a piercing truth. It's kind of something that penetrates our conscience in a particular way, because like you said, Jasmine, we're not often thinking about it while it's happening around us. So for Malcolm to make this kind of a statement, 
and be this definitive, you know, I, I could see, you know, maybe us all being socialized into this idea that that's an overcorrection or, you know, he's being extreme or, or taking it too far, but to really soberly consider how history really played out in the lives of actual people, it's, it's dead on. So here's, here's something that I hope we can take from this starting point is Malcolm obviously had examples of Black women in his life that he drew from. If you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, there's, there's no shortage of, of his commentary about his own mother and around his family, his, his sisters, his, his aunts. You know, there were a lot of influences in his life that you know shaped who he was and yet there is this figure that i think stands above all the rest and, and it's so interesting because she's so understated in some ways betty shabazz betty shabazz is a heroic woman who doesn't often get a lot of attention and time because i think in some ways she has presented herself in an understated way and in another way she's the she's a picture of strength and dignity that uh, we need to draw more from. So I, I guess just in staying there and in, in looking at her and trying to highlight her to a certain degree, Jasmine, I'd love to, to hear from you if you've had time to just kind of reflect on, on who she is and, and think more about her presence in Malcolm's life. Yeah, whenever we, because we've listened to the autobiography of Malcolm X more than once. And whenever we listen to it, I am always struck by Malcolm was brilliant, but he could not have been an easy person to be married to. Like his mind was <laughs> always working. He always said what he thought. And even though he has this quote about black women being disrespected that we so appreciate and we so love, there are times when Malcolm is talking about women in his book that I as a woman am cringing at. Just like, mm. oh, oh no, Malcolm. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can't talk about women like that. It's 2021. But thinking about the strength of his wife to to just be a study and a constant in his life, it is difficult to be married to a Black man in America by sheer nature of the fact that his life is decked with trauma that we would not have to otherwise interact with. And I think the same goes the other way that so much of our relationships in the black community are hampered and fettered with the trauma of growing up in a country that perceives us a certain way. And also in Malcolm's case, just growing up with a really turbulent, difficult childhood, going to prison for all those years coming out. I mean, when I think about everything that he brought to the table in their marriage and I think about how she stood by him and raised his children and sat at home while he put his life on the line and then had to raise his children after he died there is a strength there that is kind of easy to get overshadowed um, when you think about all that Malcolm is and I like how you you threw such you know see I'm an artist Jasmine so I can hear like metaphor deeper than you know, just something being said. And I, I like that subtle jab that you threw Phil's way, you know, like how hard it is, <laughs> how hard it is to be oh, married. Wow. <laughs> so hard. Wow. I said it goes both ways. <laughs> I mean. But Phil, honestly, Phil, though, I think like it, it might be good to kind of talk about 
just how we grew in this area because I remember when we first got married I would talk about the unique experiences of black women and you'd be like okay I guess like maybe and now you are (laughs) the hugest advocate like total 180 what kind of helped you understand the plight of black women in America better there's a lot of I I feel like I'm constantly going through transformation with how I see and understand the world I saw so much firsthand that I couldn't ignore, that I could sympathize with because I had experienced it, but in, in a completely different way. And I, and I think also, too, you know, learning to trust my wife's word and my wife's perspective uh, on things as well was also huge. So I think it was more so not just me seeing it, but also me really getting to know you because there there were a lot, you know, without going into a whole lot of detail, there were a lot of even perceptions that misperceptions that I had about you that over time, our marriage kind of showed me, our relationship showed me that was completely wrong. It, it really takes listening to a person, doing life with a person to, and it really takes actually trying to observe their interactions with the world and your interactions with the world in order to understand like what's really going on. Now, the thing is I grew up around, I was mostly raised by women. So I'm still even reflecting on why didn't that make me more sensitive to these things early on? What was it that did not allow me to see and be aware of these things? Because I, again, the women who shaped me and raised me were my mom, my aunts and my grandmother. And I think even it was in my marriage where I began to have a greater appreciation and love and respect for them. And Jasmine could tell you right now that that was already high, but it grew even deeper as Jasmine and I's marriage grew and matured uh, and we grew closer to each other, uh, that it actually made me understand and sympathize and have more compassion for my mom, aunts, and my grandmother. So, so that I'm still kind of reflecting on what was going on there. I do think that once again, I became more power aware, if you will, that's when I was able to connect the dots with what was essentially happening and begin to, to get to the root of what was going on rather than saying, well, you know, this is sexism and this is racism and and kind of compartmentalizing all of these things. And in my mind now, they're all connected. And so while power gets to the root of these things, uh, you still have to talk about the structures that have been created in order to sustain this. And even if the structures aren't there by law, a lot of the structures are still there culturally. Because again, not only are we taught what to think, we're taught how to think. And that keeps us from sort of getting past the, this is what you said versus this is what I see, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, this, this resonates just to hear you guys both talk about this. And I I guess I'll, I'll also ask this question because this is also an internal discussion with me and my wife and I was up, shout out to Liz. How are you doing? I know it's hard being married to me, baby. And I know we just going to keep pushing. Um, but I, I was just I, thinking when we started the conversation, I was like, why didn't we have Jasmine and Liz on? Because we ain't got time. You know, it would it would just, we might as well just get off the mic. But <laughs> listen, I, I wanted to be specific and ask it as it relates to, you know, Betty Shabazz. I wanted to ask Jasmine because Liz and I have had this conversation about 
the maybe the sense of danger that you feel in being married to a person who is visible, a black man who is visible and vocal, whatever sense that you have. And I was actually surprised to hear Liz say that she is afraid or she carries kind of like a concern, a regular concern all the time. And I wanted to know if that was something that you have felt just, you know, being married to Phil and and knowing what it means to build a life together, kind of just your relation to maybe what Betty Shabazz may have been feeling. I think about that pretty often, not so much from a stance of physical safety, but from a stance of emotional safety, from a stance of, I know my husband and I know what it cost him to walk through the world every day as a power aware black man. Um, I know what it costs him to operate mm -hmm. in evangelical circles as a power aware black man. I know what it costs him to be in some meetings, some conversations and things that people have said or misunderstood about him. And then just knowing my husband as a person, knowing how hard it is for him to be misunderstood and mm -hmm. how everything is kind of stacked against him to have to deal with being misunderstood 24 mm -hmm. seven. Um, it's, hard on my heart because there's only so much that I can do as his wife to alleviate that burden. And so I can't imagine from Betty's perspective, having the added fear of violence and having the added fear of losing him. I think about, you know, Medgar Evers wife, fact that she lost her strong, vocal, visible husband. Of course, Coretta Scott King lost her strong, vocal, visible husband. And eventually, um, you know, Betty did as well. And I think about that cost, but also just the all of the emotional costs that led up to that of him coming home and needing a safe place and her navigating what it means to be a safe place to a misunderstood black man. Mm. And, you know, I found, you know, that's, that's so good. That's so good. You know, I like the, the language, you know, power aware black man in evangelical spaces, because that, you know, that's a game changer right there. And, and, and as you probably know, that involves a lot of conversation, open processing, you know, how that feels, what that looks like. And even looking at a person like Betty, like, you know, when Malcolm was killed, you know, very shortly afterwards, you know, they interviewed her and she kind of had this quiet strength about her. I don't know how she kept the composure that she kept just to talk with clarity and be decisive about ways she wanted to answer the questions that they were asking her, some of which I felt were a little insensitive, but she still just kind of displayed this constant grace and strength in responding to a, a traumatic tragedy. And, and I think about her, uh, her children, you know, who looked at her as an example through this trauma and, and the others that you mentioned, you know, whether it's Megar Evers or, or Dr. King, they all had situations where families were very young children were there and had to process this as well. So when, when I look at Betty, I, I now have the, her daughter's her and Malcolm's daughters to give us an example of that continued grace and strength. And not sure how you, how many how much you guys have interacted with her daughters and and what they have said and the kind of work that they've been a part of. Talk a little bit about 
your view of, of what they may have had to endure and, and what you perceive in terms of their them continuing Malcolm's legacy? That feels like something that I also have experience with just because um, I have a larger than life in some circles father. And so I'm very sensitive to the fact that our perception of Malcolm, our perception of Martin, our perception of Medgar as incisive political figures doesn't say anything about who they may have been at home as fathers. Mm. And I do think that oftentimes, particularly daughters, get overshadowed when they want to process what it is to be the daughter, like the real life flesh and blood living with them every day daughter of this person who at the end of the day at home is more human than he'll ever be. And so that offers in even more complexity from my perspective as a fellow daughter of someone who has a lot to say. I'm even more protective of their perceptions of their father, their experience of their father, and the navigation that it takes to speak publicly and be publicly and exist publicly under a shadow that is never going to move. Individuals will feel more of an ownership of a particular figure. I'm talking about the general public when I say individuals. To the to the extent where they have the audacity to talk to uh, a child of this particular figure as if they know the figure better than the child does. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also tend to impose unrealistic expectations upon the children as if the child is supposed to adopt 100% everything that, that the public figure, that the father adopts. And, and so uh, it, it takes away a certain level of autonomy and independence. Taylor, you and I, I mean, I, I, pro- I probably experienced this less than either of you uh, because Taylor, you're, you're PK as well, but you know, nobody within reason adopts 100% everything that their parents believe. Uh, that's very, very rare if it happens at all. When it's always fascinating when these people, you know, online, and I'm sure Malcolm's children have experienced this, would will essentially just assume that they're supposed to think like he did, follow in his footsteps, do what you know and and if they have anything that differs from his beliefs then all of a sudden they're a complete disappointment but is that the relationship that you have with your parents and the answer most of the time is absolutely not mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's it's not a it's not a healthy relationship it's not even a reasonable expectation that we have on the general public we only place this type of expectation on the children of public figures and and we do a great disservice to those children uh, when that happens. I, I remember listening to one of Malcolm's daughters. Her name is Ilyasa Shabazz. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She talked a lot about how her mother helped preserve the memory of her father. So her mother was yep. very, very much invested in making sure that what his daughters thought of him, what, what Malcolm's daughters thought of him stayed within the realm of who he was at home, you know, how, how he loved them and, and 
how he could experience joy. Mm, and, that's good. You know, to the to the point that Jasmine was making, like, you know, what other people, whether whatever perception people have publicly of your father figure, you know, they don't own your father, you know, and that becomes a really tricky balance when when you're a public figure, how so many different people make demands on you and and essentially they feel like they can claim a part of you. But I, I thought it was really interesting just to hear yep. Ilyasa just articulate that, you know, Betty Shabazz worked hard to make sure that her father belonged to them. And that's good. That his love for them was never to be questioned. That he, even though he lost his life early, it it was in no way any kind, there was no bearing on how much he cared about them, how much he wanted to be there them and and just for her to be able to have that to me also communicates something profound about Betty Shabazz is that she would work to instill that in them and um, Ilya says is now carrying on a lot of her father's work even though it wasn't required like you said Phil but it's from that foundation of knowing that her father loved her and I think that's that's the beautiful place to start so I have I just have just kind of a general question because you know getting back to this quote from Malcolm you know we're in an interesting time in our society where you know black women in particular are very vocal and uh, unapologetic in the expression and presentation of what it means to be a black woman and what it means to have a voice and what it means to have influence in society and there there appears to be a mixed reaction to that you know, if I could be diplomatic myself, but um, I'd, I'd be interested to hear from you, Jasmine, is, is to say like what Malcolm is saying here is is a sentiment that could carry over into a lot of the commentary that we're navigating in society today. What are some of your reflections on on how people would take this sentiment and use it well or or perhaps use it in unhealthy ways because listen phil and i are two guys we're two men we're, we're black men and no matter how carefully we try to talk about this we're going to step on something that is a mine and 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 it just we shouldn't say something that we should say or that we did say and we're we're not able to ultimately speak from personal experience but as a black woman hearing malcolm say that black women are the most mistreated neglected and seeing what's going on in our, our social moment right now where black voices, black women voices are becoming more pronounced. Do you feel like we're in a healthy place or are we getting to a healthier place in hearing from black women? I feel like we're in a different place than we were. If you wanna know more about black women and kind of what was going on in the civil rights movement with black womanhood and particularly their rape by white men, at the Dark End of the Street is fantastic. It's by uh, Danielle Colvin, and it kind of talks about how the rape of Black women played a huge part in the resistance that like snowballed into the civil rights movement. And so as Malcolm X is saying these words, we have Black women across the South who are living in fear. And then we have Claudette Colvin being the first woman to refuse to give up her seat on the bus but being ostracized from the movement 
because of the fact that she was a teenager who was pregnant out of wedlock. So instead of letting Colvin kind of speak for herself and speak for the movement, they ended up choosing Rosa Parks because she was older um, and also her skin was lighter and she was more respectable. Mm. And so Rosa Parks became the picture of the woman who doesn't give up her seat on the bus because she was a respectable black woman um, when compared to the younger Colvin. Anyway, the book is fascinating and it kind of gave me more insight into this because as Malcolm is talking, black womanhood is literally physically under attack in America. And so his words were so poignant and salient then in a very real visceral and physical way. Mm. Nowadays, I think the physical reality is a little bit different. Well, a lot of it different. Obviously, we can prosecute a lot more easier now and there's a lot of things that have changed but I don't I don't know that I would say that we definitely haven't arrived because I still see so many black women being silenced by tropes and by stereotypes and by kind of this this tug of war between am I just a brain or am I just a body am I allowed to be soft and and quote unquote feminine or do I always have to be strong does having an advanced degree and being able to speak for myself is that an asset when it comes to trying to find a husband or is that a liability are black women really at the front of these movements or are they being pushed to the front of these movements just for pictures and photo ops or are black women at the front of these movements but then other people are getting pushed to the front of these movements for the same reason it there there's just there's so much yep so much that goes on and and goes into what it means to be a vocal black woman in 2021 that is different from what it was in Malcolm's day and yet still his words are salient for us today yeah I couldn't help but there's I mean there's a lot that you said there and it's going to be perfect for what I want to transition into but the complexities of the things that you guys have to think through why am I here What's the purpose? Am I really influenced or am I just being used? And a conversation that I could not, or a topic that's in the, happening right now in the broader culture that I couldn't help but uh, think about was Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor. And essentially, these are two reporters for ESPN. One is a white woman. The other is a black woman. Maria Taylor is a black woman. Rachel Nichols is a white woman. And a conversation was called on tape somehow by, I guess, Rachel Nichols left her recorder on. And while she was having a private conversation with, I guess, this PR guy, I'm not quite, I'm not as familiar with him. I am familiar with Rachel. And this is what she said, because I think these dynamics exist everywhere. I wish Maria Taylor all the success in the world. She covers football. She covers basketball, Nichols said in July 2020. If you need to give her more things to do because you are feeling pressure about your crappy long-time record on diversity, which, by the way, I know personally from the female side of it, like, go for it. Just find it somewhere else. You are not going to find it from me or taking my thing away. Now, few dynamics there. This, this sort of limited pot, right, that oftentimes any level of minority is is placed into. So I got a limited pot of my minority seats 
And, you know, I'm going to take from this minority in order to give to this minority. I see it happen all the time. But also Rachel's response is always interesting because she's saying, this is my thing. You're not going to take my thing and give it to someone else. Now, if you're going to have a conversation about power and, and you're trying to address disparities and all these things in society, first of all, institutions have to have to not do what they're doing. Second, second, though, I could see this completely happening with a the same type of bitterness and or or frustration or annoyance that Rachel is feeling. It's the same thing that happens to white men who come from households that are sort of lower class. And if you are a white person coming from a a lower class background and you are the individual who kind of is the first college graduate in your family and you are working hard and you're doing your thing. And then all of a sudden something is taken away from you and to give to a black man or a black woman or a white woman. This is sort of this, this backlash that is felt, right? When you don't understand power structures and when, when you don't understand because you look at it as mine. Listen, I worked hard to be here just like everybody else. You're not going to, you know, it's cool that you want to give it to this other person, but don't take it from me, like find it somewhere else. What, what are y'all thoughts on all the different dynamics that tend to happen? And I want to just circle back to this Maria Taylor and Rachel Nichols story. What are y'all's initial reactions when you hear that? Well, I'm, I'll say something first. I just, just real quick. Um, you know, the question that that comes into mind is about competency, you know, because what Rachel did, whether knowingly or unknowing, unknowingly, was question Maria Taylor's competency. You know, essentially that ESPN was not going to give Maria Taylor the job because she was competent or either as good as or better than Rachel, but because she was black. Right. You know, basically yep. saying that ESPN was trying to fix their diversity reputation versus like actually taking a hard look at Maria Taylor and saying, how talented is she? You know, is this something that she has worked for? What is her range? What is her expertise and and all that different stuff? But it, this is a corporate America scenario where someone or two people are, are in position to gain a promotion or an opportunity and you know factors like race come up because this is a black woman and at the end of the day the affirmative action trigger is is ready at least it seems like it's always ready from from a white person's perspective instead of like truly considering merit so yep that's a good way to put it it. it's so interesting to me that because at the end of the day you know (laughs) rachel nichols she's she's in a position of of privilege just because of her family like she's married to a director and her mother-in-law is diane sawyer you know so it's like all right you're going to get an opportunity somewhere let's just be real like that's that's going to afford you conversations and networking opportunities that would not afford most people and maria taylor on the other hand, is genuinely talented. I don't. If you guys are not familiar with her work, she's like great on TV. Yep. Instant glow, instant. She's co-hosted the. Out. Yeah, she's co-hosted. What is it? Uh, first take with Stephen A. Smith a few times, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. I she's, always enjoy she's when she's moderating the conversation. Yeah, she's she's really good. 
She's great. So at end of the day, I think what continues to be a struggle for black people in this situation for black women is whether or not we are able to be viewed on our merits and, and, and seen in an equal light with our white counterparts as to what we deserve yeah. or what we have worked for. And I think in this scenario, and I may say unintentionally, I don't know, but Rachel Nichols would have positioned herself as a white ally for black people and for black advancement. But here, here it is. We get, we always get to this point where it's going to cost white folks something. Exactly. There you go. Cost you something. You can't just give it to me and then have your cake too. You're going to actually have to sacrifice and it's not even a sacrifice that's based on some unfair ethnic advantage. It's based on merit. You know, like what is, what, how do you gauge talent? How do you gauge expertise? How do you gauge chemistry and say, all right, we're going to make a decision based on these factors, not just based on your race. Man, there's, there's so much you said there that is important. I'll, I'll clarify a few things when it comes to the contract. This isn't anything that ESPN could make her do because it was in her contract. ESPN was essentially asking her, hey, why don't you do the sideline report and let Maria do this? Or I don't even know if they even mentioned Maria as as potentially her replacement. But what you said was right. I, I'm okay with Maria taking this job as long as it's not taking anything from me. And this is when it comes to giving up power and how important that part is in this conversation giving up another word you might use is privilege so that others have can have opportunity and again i think there are a lot of people that are wrong in this particular conversation there's there's espn for pitting the two against each other there's rachel for not recognizing that this is her opportunity that to see even though they are pitting us against each other i'm not going to even bring race as a factor in this scenario because I don't want to, even privately, because I don't want to disparage the fact that she is very much qualified for, she would do a great job, right? That's, and that wasn't what she said. She, it, you know, even if she had been like, you know, Mar Maria would kill it. But I'm struggling with the idea of ESPN trying to pit us against each other. The dynamics of the conversation was mm -hmm. they need to fix their crappy diversity record. So they want to give Maria this opportunity. And so you're doing, and, and I think that, that, that to some extent, Rachel's, Rachel could be right, but by being right and saying that's what they were attempting to do, she's, she also becomes a participant in part of the problem because institutions mm -hmm. will give a talented and qualified Black person an opportunity or a position, and, and they are more excited about that person being a particular minority than they are about the talent and the asset that that person is to the organization or to the institution. So it's, it's, it's really weird to watch it work because you can have somebody who's super qualified, who's killing it, but they be, have a hard time finding somebody to replace that person. But when you ask them what they're more excited about or, or if you could get them to admit what they're most excited about, it would be the fact that that person is a minority. Well, listen, you know, we've all experienced this. So yep. <laughs> like- Jasmine, what, what, yeah. Go ahead, Taylor. My bad. No, no, Jasmine. I, you know, I'm sure you can speak to it from from your personal and and really what we're getting into is just you know what what is the difference between competency and you know some sort of greater diversity 
agenda. You know, I'm not sure if, if there's, you know, a, a personal story or just a experience that you, you would like to share about how that played out for you and, and where you saw real inequality in terms of treatment or just, you know, if you want to go as far as to just say flat out racism, you know, just because you are a black woman. Yeah, being I want to be careful, um, but I have definitely experienced I was a teacher for nine years and all nine years, all of the staff that I worked with was predominantly white. Only one of my nine years of teaching did I teach with another black um, teacher. And so me being in the room sometimes was treated as an asset in the extreme to like, Jasmine, we want to know about cultural competency. Tell us everything about being a black woman and how it intersects so that we can learn everything from you and you can just tell us all the right answers. And that was a lot of pressure to the Mm -hmm. other side where it was like, Hey, we like the idea of having a black woman in this position, but if you could just not bring anything to the table that actually has to do with the fact that you're a black woman, that'd be great. And so those are two extremes that I have dealt with because you want to in, in schools, especially, you know, especially when you're in a school that's predominantly white as a black woman, as a black teacher, I feel these kids will maybe never have another opportunity to have a black teacher again, especially here in Mississippi, where the main colleges here just don't have a great track record at hiring and keeping black faculty. And so there's that tug of I want to be here. I want to be available. I want to help. I want to I want to impact, I want to change, but it's also just a uniquely lonely and difficult circumstance to be in when you're not sure if people are putting up with you or if they actually want you there or Mm. if they are threatened by you or if they, it's just, it's, it's this constant, you know, mind game and question that I found myself asking every year that I taught. Jasmine, thank you so much for for sharing that. I'm sure you gave a voice to so many who are who are currently navigating that, and and hopefully to those who may be considering uh, hiring a black woman or integrating a black woman into their corporate structure or their work environment. Hopefully, that they can understand some of the difficulty and complexity of of what it means to enter into that space. So, thank you for sharing that. I was I was just going to say shout out to <laughs> the Holmes kids. <laughs> they, they did uh, all right. Yeah, they did all right. They did all right. We got to get them on again one day. Y'all don't even uh, know what's been going on and on behind this muted mic. You don't even yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to regulate. Yeah, and I'm about to take my swimming. So um, I'll just say this, Jasmine. We thank you so much for for being a guest for us. And Phil, thank you for for lending us some time with your wife. This is this is coming from a Malcolm X quote, like we typically do, and it, and it brings us to so much good conversation. So I appreciate that. Yeah, this was a super helpful conversation. I think we got to have guests on more often. I enjoyed having. A, a third third party Jasmine if you want to be a recurring guest you are more than welcome to keep coming back uh, but we got to get some other people on as well uh, it was nice to have a third voice on the mic today thank y'all for having me alright to our listeners thank you guys for joining us I, I would I would suggest reading more about Betty Shabazz and Ilya Shabazz and the work she's doing
Thanks for joining us this week on Make It Plain. Make sure to visit our website at makeitplain.co. That's makeitplain.co, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out the autobiography of Malcolm X and consider joining our Patreon group, Home to Roost, where we're discussing his autobiography from a Christian perspective twice a month. Speaking of our Patreon community, a big shout out to each and every one of our Patreon supporters. You help make this show possible. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. Until then, let's continue the conversation via social media. A link to all of our social media accounts can be found at Make It Plain dot co